Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Film. I am your host, Joel Cherney. Today I will be talking with Becky Aikman, author of the book, Off the Cliff, How the Making of Thelma and Louise Drove Hollywood to the Edge. The book was published in 2017 by Penguin Books. In this comprehensive overview of the making of the 1991 film, Becky discusses Calicori's screenplay, which was praised by many who still refused to make the film. The book also illustrates a time where women in Hollywood had to fight to even be heard, let alone make films, something that is unfortunately still an issue more than 25 years later. Welcome, Becky Aikman. Hi, Becky. Thanks for talking to me. Hi, Joel. Nice to be here. So your book is the story of the making of Thelma and Louise and a a film that when it first came out or when it was first being made, no one expected much of it quite frankly, and and we'll talk a lot about that aspect of it, but it's now in many ways made, uh, is considered a classic and rightly so. But one of the other things that comes out in your book in a great deal is the issues of women in the film industry that unfortunately, 25 years later, we're still dealing with much of it. So uh, I'm sure we'll get into all of that as well. Now, obviously you have some writing you've written for uh, New York Times and Newsweek and other places, but this is your first book about film, uh, a film. So let's get a little bit of background. Um, what led you to uh, writing in the first place? And so we can come up to why this particular topic or this particular subject is so important to you. Well, I was a newspaper reporter for a couple decades, and I covered the entertainment industry quite a bit um, when I was at a newspaper. So it's a natural subject for me to take on it. And this particular book uh, came about because I wanted to write something about this broader issue of women in Hollywood and how women's stories aren't told enough in Hollywood and women don't get opportunities in Hollywood. But I soon decided that I would go completely crazy droning on for 300 pages about something that is fairly depressing and hasn't changed much. I wanted to tell a story that read more like a novel where it had characters against the system, uh, triumphing in the end, something like that. Um, So I decided it would be a good idea to look at one great woman's film that got made and made well and see what could be learned from examining that process about how it could happen again. So Thelma and Louise naturally popped into my head within seconds of me thinking about this because, first of all, there aren't that many to choose from. And second, it is such a classic at this point and also addresses issues about women. So it was perfect uh, to look at a movie that was an unlikely movie to get made in Hollywood and how did the people involved beat the system to get it done. 
Right. And what kind of compromises did they still have to make in order to get it done? And we know that there were some. I mean, uh, obviously, uh, the film came pretty close to being what the screenplay was in many ways. But there are obviously things that didn't go the way uh, that we wanted originally, but it still was made pretty close to um, the the original idea. There wasn't. Yes. And uh, really, there weren't that many compromises made compared to most movies, which is why it is such a singular movie, uh, so original, so different from everything else. And I think there's a number of reasons why that happened. One is that a lot of the people involved were very stubborn. Mm-hmm. They did not give in. And they did not want to do business as usual filmmaking. And I think another reason was that a lot of the people involved really didn't know what they were doing. They were young. They were new at it. They weren't Hollywood insiders. They had no idea that they were making a movie that was so against the grain. But of course, so before we get into into the book in detail, of course, I just want to mention real briefly your other book, which, like I say, is is not related to Hollywood at all, but is it's your memoir, Saturday Night Widows, The Adventures of Six Friends Remaining, Remaking Their Lives, excuse me. Uh, totally different from this, but I think it, I wanted to make sure we mentioned it because I, I did actually read that book right after I read uh, Thelma, the book on Thelma and Louise and very interesting memoir that uh, I hope people take the t- who if they haven't read it already take the time to, to read yeah they, they seem pretty different in terms of subject matter but they do share the characteristic that both of them are about a group of people getting together and accomplishing when did you decide okay this was the book I was you know it was it something where it, it jumped out you mentioned that it was the kind of thing where you decided to pick that book in order to make the over to make the uh, or this movie in order to make the, the, the wider point were you always pretty much thinking one film made sense rather than trying to do multiples or did it just make sense all along that this was the movie you wanted to cover? I have to say it just made sense all along. I never considered another one really because it was so contrary to my purposes. Now I didn't just jump in and commit to it until I did a little background research to make sure that the story would be exciting and compelling. Uh, The thing about writing nonfiction is that you can't make things up. So the story itself, the true story, has to be fun and interesting and have an exciting plot for people to read. So I did make sure that um, it would fit those requirements and that a number of the key people would speak to me before I committed to going ahead because I didn't want to have to cobble it together uh, without talking to the key people whose thinking uh, drove what this movie became. So I did several interviews first. And um, I remember one interview I did early on, someone said to me that uh, the way Thelma and Louise got made, it's the kind of story in Hollywood that happens once in 10 lifetimes. So I knew it would be a good yarn, uh, that it would be unusual and uh, that there would be a lot of moments along the way where it could all go wrong and somehow it worked out. So I, thought, yeah, this is going to be a fun book to research and I hope to read. Of course, the other thing, and you've pointed it out, is that uh, it is definitely a a story of trying to uh, get something or get something done that everybody's saying is not going to be able to be done. In fact, that's you start right away about discussing the issue related to how everybody thought it was a wonderful screenplay. And well, let's let's get more in depth into that right away. 
the the main person, you know, the the the, the mother, so to speak, of Thelma and Louise, the film, and is is uh, uh, her name is Callie Corey. She started as many people do in Hollywood, uh, doing smaller or, or lesser work, and then uh, somehow, some way, was able to come up with a screenplay that she was able to get people to read. But could you give me a little bit of background of her, and especially as it you know in that time prior to uh, when uh, she was able to write Thumb and Louise? Yes, um, when I said a lot of the key people had no idea what they were doing. Chief among them was Callie Curry. She had never written anything before. She was a college dropout and former waitress who had a really, really low-level job on the fringes of the entertainment industry. She lined up sort of behind-the-scenes logistics for really cheesy music videos, uh, metal hair bands with uh, women gyrating in the background and uh, pretty bad music up front. Uh, she was quite discouraged by this. And she threw all of her frustrations over her own thwarted ambitions into this story, creating this story. Uh, she told me uh, she wasn't writing the kind of movie that got made. She was writing the movie she wanted to see. She didn't really expect it to become anything. It was more her own catharsis to write this story. She ultimately wound up winning the Oscar for it. And it was the first time in 60 years that a woman who was writing without a male partner won an Oscar for Best Original Screenplay. So she did all right. But it was interesting, as you pointed out, even though she probably would freely admit that she didn't know really what she was doing, so to speak, she also still had the, one of the things that comes through constantly in the book is that she doesn't want to compromise. She wanted to direct it, for example. She felt that that, that she would be able to do it. And uh, as you point out, even though she didn't have a lot of experience, she still felt that this was something that she could do. And uh, a lot of the early part of the book, obviously, is discussing how, you know, how she developed the book and or the movie and the, the screenplay and got to that point of saying, hey, I want to do this, but I feel like I be, should be the one I should be able to direct it. Uh, well, we all know how that can be when you do something and you, you know you've done it well. I mean, it is a great screenplay. What winds up on the screen is 99% exactly what she wrote. And, and she knew it. She knew she had created something powerful, dramatic, also funny. Uh, she knew it was good. So she was very stubborn. Uh, she tried to convince producers to take on the project, but she wasn't willing to sell out. It was so well-written and so entertaining that um, there were producers who took meetings with her, but they all made suggestions. They would say things like, these characters weren't likable enough. They would say that the audience wouldn't stand for it if women committed any kind of violence. And um, many of them said, it would be better if the women were rescued by a man. Right. Uh, nobody liked the ending. They all said, well, the ending's got to go. But Callie really could have sold out. She could have made some money. People said, you could get your first screenplay made and make some money and make your name and then do the story you really want to do later. But she loved this story. It meant a lot to her. It came straight from her heart. So she was not willing to let anybody do that. 
she insisted that anyone who bought the screenplay had to keep many of the key elements in place as she wrote them. One of the things that you discussed, like I say early on, is the fact that she was getting large amounts of praise for the screenplay, but nobody would buy it. Um, people were saying this is absolutely spectacular. You know, this, and, and she had help uh, with uh, agents and, and other people who really supported her and believed in what she was, you know, in, in believed in the screenplay as a movie. But she couldn't at first they couldn't find anybody willing to do it. That's right. And there were two uh, key moments that uh, mattered. One was that a young production assistant who worked for the British director Ridley Scott uh, read the screenplay and really liked it and asked if she could show it to her boss. Um, Now, Ridley Scott, as most of us know, uh, was an accomplished director by that time. He had done Blade Runner and Alien. And he was known as a very macho, cigar-chomping guy's guy. He had cast um, Sigourney Weaver as the lead in Alien, so that gave him a little bit of feminist cred. Uh, But that was actually the studio's idea, not his. And for the most part, his movies were big, grandiose, sci-fi action spectacles. So no one would have expected that he would be interested in making this little script about two women running amok. Uh, And in fact, that was true. He did not want to direct the movie, but he really recognized the quality of the screenplay. So he said that he would be willing to produce the movie so that someone else could direct it. So that was a big step. And it gave the the project some oomph that someone with his reputation was willing to uh, get behind it. Uh, The next big moment then was that um, an agent took on this screenplay because it had to be sold to a studio and the studio would put up the money. This agent was at ICM and she very quickly got Jodie Foster and Michelle Pfeiffer to agree to play the two leads. Right. With this in place, the agent sent the package out to all of the Hollywood studios and sat back waiting for the explosion because she knew the screenplay was so great. She knew these were big stars that Ridley Scott was involved. Um, And I opened the book with the morning when all the calls came back in and one after another, they said, no, no, no. And they were quite blatant about it. They said, we can't make a movie with two women in the lead. They also hated the ending, but uh, mostly it was the fact that making movies about women just was not done. There would be one or two a year and they were usually romances so the idea of two women on the road in a more a movie that you're used to seeing men in was something no one would take on except for one studio. That studio was financially troubled. It was called Pathé Entertainment. And they were everybody's last choice for a studio to work with because they were on such shaky ground. But they were the only ones willing to make this movie. And that was because of the leader of the studio, Alan Ladd Jr., who had been a major studio force in Hollywood, usually at better studios before this. But Alan Ladd Jr. was very old school Hollywood, and he believed that movies starring women had a place. He, I say in the book, he was so old fashioned, he was practically revolutionary because he harked back to the time when Joan Crawford, Betty Davis and stars like that really carried movies. So he believed that there was a place for movies about women, and so he decided to put his money on making 
Thelma Louise, and that's what got it out of the box. Yeah, I sometimes think that Alan Ladd Jr. does not get the credit he deserves. I mean, it's not just this. There were, you know, he frankly, Star Wars, exactly. told, you know, Star Wars was made, uh, uh, you know, Alan Ladd Jr. was very important to the making of that. And I just sometimes, and, and these are not the only films that, that he uh, championed, so to speak, uh, that ended up being good decisions on his part. So it, it isn't, when I see his name mentioned in a story, I says, I bet you it ended up being a success because he seemed to know what to, to do. And, and he, he would champion enough that a film like this, where most people, like you say, were saying, no, we're going, not going to do it. He would be, uh, he, he would understand it. Of course he had the pedigree. So, you know, he, as you say, he was old Hollywood because of his, uh, father and, and, and family. So, uh, it's not a surprise that his name was involved in this. Yes. And he, uh, had been the force behind really just about the only major women's films in the eighties, movies like Silkwood, uh, Moonstruck, Norma Ray, uh, Alan Ladd Jr. was the person at the studio who greenlighted those movies. It, that He was at bigger, better studios for most of those, not at Pathé. But he had the courage of his convictions, and a lot of those movies were successful. And like you say, and they all had the same, like you say, they had the same thing in common, strong women, uh, women characters, and they ended up being important the, the main focus of the films so in fact it's funny how you give the names just about every film that seems like that the name of the character or you know silkwood and norma ray and thelma and louise you know we put it right out there this is uh this is uh what we're what we're talking about with these kind of films that they're meant to be uh strong women and, and we're not going to hide behind some man to make the make the point Exactly. And he also um, employed a lot of women in executive positions at his studios. He was the way a lot of women got their start in Hollywood. So thank God for Alan Ladd Jr. So she, it took her, I've forgotten now from reading the book, how long it took her to, to write the screenplay. But this is what's so great about the book is that you were able to, by because you were able to talk to so many people, including she, uh, you were able to put together a pretty good description of of how the the you know how she developed the screenplay and got it to the to the point where she started sending it out, or you know had it available. But uh, how long did it actually take her to to develop it to a point where she was ready to try to get somebody to pick it up? It wasn't that long. It was less than a year. The story really poured out of her. As I said before, it came straight from her heart. It wasn't that hard for her to write it. Um, so that was sort of the easiest moment in the making of the movie, I would say. And because one of the things you also talk about early on in the book is the fact, as we've already been talking about, is that 70s and 80s women just there were, you mentioned there really were only two women who had any real uh, ability to do much of anything in, in Hollywood. And that was Barbara Streisand and Jane Fonda. Um, but as you say, in each case, they still had to go up against uh the Hollywood that existed at the time, I mean, both of them ended up having to almost go out on their own in order to get things made, even though they were clear box office uh, success had it, but they still could not get uh, the kind of uh, support from Hollywood that, that men regularly got. 
Yes, I mean, it's a long tradition in Hollywood, and it's still a problem that the people who dole out the money have some old-fashioned idea that silly little women don't know how to manage things uh, that are very big or profound. So uh, it's very hard for women then and now to get the money to, to make a movie. And we all know that women are good at telling stories. Women do very well in books. There are many best-selling authors who are extremely successful. Uh, that's because you don't have to give someone a pile of money to get a book written. But you do have to give them a pile of money to make a movie. And that's one of the things that's held women back so much. So now you, you obviously mentioned that one of the ways that uh, she was able to get at least people paying attention and, we th and she thought was able, would be able to get somebody to go along was that she already had people to play Thelma and Louise, Jodie Foster and uh, and Michelle Pfeiffer, although I think there was a back, was there a back and forth between them as to who was going to play whom, or was that when we got to the people who actually played the characters, that there was some descript discussion of who was, which person was going to be playing which character? There was always discussion about who could play which character, because they're both such rich, nuanced, interesting characters, and any actress would enjoy bringing one of them to life. So every time there was a discussion of casting, it was always a little bit of a back and forth of, over who would play which part. And many actresses preferred the role of Thelma because she was the more comic role. And she at least appeared to evolve more over the course of the story. By the end, she becomes much tougher and more forceful and more of a leader. Uh, so there was a little bit of a preference by some actresses for the Thelma part, but Basically, every woman in Hollywood was dying to get one of these two roles. It was a huge competition. It was a free-for-all. Everybody's agent was always on the phone with the studio, with Ridley Scott, trying to get their um, clients cast because, as I said, there are only one or two major parts for women in any given year. Otherwise, they stand around in the background as the passive, boring girlfriend. Uh, Gina Davis called them the good luck, honey, parts. So women were dying to play a part like Thelma or Louise where they could really flex their acting muscles and show what they could do. When, we obviously know that uh, the film was made, obviously, but where did – and obviously Ridley Scott came in as a producer and there was this long period of time where they were trying to find somebody to direct the film because he consistently said, you know, this isn't for me. Uh, we've got to find somebody else to do it. Uh, and, of course, Callie was consistently saying that she felt she could, but they, that was one thing where it just wasn't going to happen, that uh, they weren't going to let her direct it. But uh, what finally led uh, Ridley to Scott to finally say, well, I guess I'm going to do this film? Well, he went around and around with a couple dozen possible directors in Hollywood it's interesting, none of the people he considered were women, even though there were a few women directors at that time who I think could have done a great job at it. It just didn't occur to him. Uh, he mostly looked at directors who had backgrounds very similar to himself. It's like any workplace. People are comfortable with people like them. So he interviewed a lot of directors who started out making commercials, which is how Ridley Scott started out, and then made sort of action guy movies after that. Uh, his first choice, he told me, which I'd never heard before, was his brother, Tony Scott, right. who had made Top Gun and uh, Beverly Hills Cop 2 and other extreme macho 80s action pictures. Uh, Tony Scott said he wasn't comfortable enough with women to do this. 
And so the world was spared the Tony Scott version of Bella and Louise. And eventually, Ridley kept going around and around, and uh, Jodie Foster and Michelle Pfeiffer both had to drop out because of these long delays. But Michelle Pfeiffer said to him, why don't you wise up and direct this yourself? Now, Ridley really struggled with this because he said he wasn't comfortable with these female characters. He didn't understand what drove them. He didn't understand their emotions. But he did love the script, and he loved the opportunity it would give to show his vision of the American West and the open road. That fascinated him as someone who wasn't from America. Uh, so he was enticed by the visual possibilities of this film and decided he would go ahead and direct. But here's one of these moments when everything could have gone wrong, but instead it went right. He could have done a big, glossy Ridley Scott version of this story, but he recognized what he didn't know. So he decided to sit down at great length with Callie Corey and really comb through the script to make sure he would subsume his point of view to hers. It was a woman's story. He wanted the woman's point of view. So they went through every little detail. Uh, for example, uh, he told her, and he told me later even, that he was skeptical that women had to listen to catcalls from people like the trucker in Thelma and Louise, you know, hooting and right. making suggestive remarks at women. Uh, now, any woman can tell you this is a very common occurrence. So... Callie Curry assured him that it was, in fact, common, and his um, assistant also weighed in. So he said, okay, I'll do it. Uh, so aspects of the film like that stayed in place because he was willing to say, I don't know about this. I'll do what they tell me to do. And like, this is, I think, is the overall part of the book or one of the overall themes of the book is that as great as Thelma and Louise was and the fact that it was made was was wonderful, but nothing really changed because the, we, we still deal with these kinds of issues where men generally don't believe what a women have to go through on a daily basis. And these are the same kind of things that even today uh, it hasn't changed, and I know that is a major aspect of of, of the overall uh, meaning behind the book is that, unfortunately, things like these, like you mentioned, don't change. And and the worst part about it is it's more of a lack of understanding than anything else. I don't think uh, Ridley Scott was being facetious when he said, "No, that never happens." He just never occurred to him that it would be that kind of thing happens. Right, it didn't happen in front of him. Right. So. Uh how would he know? And this is why it is so, so important that Hollywood, television, books, any form of media lets people who are normally outsiders have their own voices. Because if you only have a few white males in charge, you only get that perspective. This movie got told about women from a woman's perspective, and lo and behold, it really spoke to women on a deep level. And I think you'd find much more of that if you let people who are outside the usual realm of who gets to tell a story tell stories. You'd be shocked at how they connect with people out there who do identify with it. That's what happened in this case, fortunately. And nowadays, given the fact that how well-known people like Gina Davis and, and Susan Sarandon are, back at the time, in 1980, you know, when this film was being developed and, and during this period when it was being made, 89 and 90, um, they weren't as well-known, obviously. And Gina Davis in particular was, was somebody who at first glance, I suspect the average person hadn't even thought of her 
And yet um, she fought very hard to make sure that she was in this film. I and mean, she was somebody who had to push herself in in order to make sure that she was in it, especially, as you say, when they started looking for other people, once Jodie Foster and, and um and Michelle Pfeiffer dropped out that Gina Davis was somebody who in her own way fought to be in this film. Oh yeah. She fought hard for more than a year. She had her agent call and call and call Ridley Scott and call the studio because she was determined to be considered for these parts. And it was tough because every big star wanted these parts. Some of the people who were considered for them were the biggest stars of the time. Cher was considered, for example, and she was a big star then and had just won the Best Actress Oscar for Moonstruck. Meryl Streep and Goldie Hawn personally called Alan Ladd Jr. to pitch themselves to do the movie as a team, and they took meetings with the studio and with Ridley Scott. They pushed very hard. The whole idea that if you were a big star, you had to sit back and wait for offers had gone by the wayside but at that time for women because there were so few parts they had to actively get out there and push 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 to get parts that were worth having now gina davis uh kept pushing and i went through all the studio paperwork from that time and they had long lists of all the actresses who were being considered and they kept having gina davis's name on the list always misspelled uh, so they weren't taking her that seriously but um she was actually, in terms of box office, someone who did fairly well. She did quirky, odd movies. She did Beetlejuice. She did The Fly. And she had won a Best Supporting Actress Oscar for uh, The Accidental Tourist, playing a somewhat quirky part. And she was worried that she was getting typecast as the kooky, quirky, oddball character and wanted to step up into a new realm and be the lead, not the supporting character. But Ridley Scott got wind that she was trying so hard and said, okay, I'll take a meeting with her. And he was blown away when he met her. He knew that the Thelma character had to have that comic ability, which she clearly had. You could see it in her previous movies. But he also saw when he met her in person that there was a steely quality within her that would be able to emerge in the later scenes of the film when Thelma gets tough and becomes a stronger, more independent person. So he felt that she could handle both sides of that character um, and decided to cast her over the objections of the studio because uh, the studio would have preferred one of these bigger stars who were in the running to get the roles so that they would have more clout at the box office. So then um, the other person involved in uh, Susan Sarandon, once again, she had had success, you know, she was successful and had a, a number of roles, but this was still a particularly uh, important role for her as far as in her career, as far as, uh, but she already had a reputation at this point when she came into this as somebody who wasn't going to just sit back and make a film and just say the lines and, and just do the thing. She was somebody who was known for being uh, outspoken. And uh, so when she came into this, uh, as you pointed out, she said that it, she didn't really look at it as a feminist film, but she, that didn't mean she wasn't going to bring her thoughts and process into the into the whole uh, film. Yes. Susan Sarandon was maybe the only major actress who had not lobbied for the part. She was based in New York and wasn't so much a part of the Hollywood mix. 
uh, Ridley Scott thought of her because his brother, Tony Scott, had worked with her on the vampire movie called The Hunger with uh, Catherine Deneuve and um, David Bowie. Um, it was one of her cheesier films, actually, but uh, he thought she was a good actress and might be good for this part. So uh, Ridley Scott asked her to sit down with him, and she was somewhat resistant, actually, to taking on the role because she wasn't happy with the fact that her character shoots someone in the course of the story. She didn't want to do a violent revenge fantasy kind of film, she said. So she wanted it to be clear that her character pays a heavy price for that and understands that she's in the wrong, that it not be a flippant, like, oh, let's shoot a lot of people movie. Uh, there was one shooting and she wanted it to be a serious event. So Ridley Scott was fine with that. And he saw right away that having Susan Sarandon on the set meant that there would be a formidable personality there pushing her point of view. And he was comfortable with that. So he cast her as the Louise character and uh, they were good to go with the two leads at that point. Of course, the other thing is and it were the other characters in the film where obviously Thumb and Louise are, are basically the only major female parts in the film. Uh, but then the men around them, you still had to be careful about those kind of casting decisions because, um, you know, it was the fine line there that uh, it wasn't certainly didn't want to make a film where, you know, the men were all bumbling fools and, and, you know, against these women. So we wanted to make something that had a more realistic feel to it. So, uh, so for example, bringing in somebody like a Harvey Keitel really helped to make the film, uh, gave it more uh, realistic quality to it. Yeah, it gave it more nuance because um, Ridley Scott cast a lot of the men against type and that gave it a sort of rough quality. They were working against the material a little bit. But I loved reporting and writing the part about casting all the men's parts in the movie. Mm -hmm. um, the men were just as eager to be in this film as the women were. It's interesting. Women felt very boxed in by the limited roles that were offered to them at that time. But the men felt boxed in as well. There were so many action movies, and all these guys told me they were so sick of being in movies where they shot somebody with a gun or drove a fast car, did the same things over and over again. Michael Madsen, who played Susan Sarandon's boyfriend, Jimmy, said that uh, the way he looked at it, everyone thought, give Madsen a gun and a cigarette and you're good to go. So they were really tired of playing parts that didn't get to show all of their acting skills. So the men in Thelma and Louise were very appealing to them because they were funny, they were different, they had vulnerabilities. Um, they were more like a realistic range of what men are like in real life. And they got to show another part of their talent as well. So there was quite a rush for people wanting to play these male roles in the movie, too. And there were some really interesting and fun casting decisions that were made as a result of that. Uh I, one of the things I didn't know from, but I've read it and it, it it's later in the book that you actually talk about this. Well, not later, but, you know, in the whole casting thing, I wonder what, what how things would have changed in their respective careers had George Clooney gotten the uh, the role that ended up going to Brad Pitt. I was when I read that, I says, oh, my God, I didn't even know that story that that George Clooney was actually up for that role. Well, nobody did really until much later. Oh, 
what happened was that um, Gina Davis read with four finalists for the part of JD, the sexy hitchhiker who has a wild night with Thelma. Um, the budget was very small, so they could not cast a known actor, but they needed somebody really good because it was a hard part to play. He had to be dangerously sexy is how the casting director looked at it. He had to be so enticing to Thelma that she would throw herself into this relationship with him. But he also had to have a dangerous underside that becomes apparent later. So it took an actor with some skill and he also had to be drop dead gorgeous. So they spoke to many, many people, and I list them all in the movie, who later did become huge stars, many of them. But the four finalists were four brunettes and one blonde, and uh, Gina Davis didn't know any of them, and neither did anybody else in the room. So they came in and they did their readings. When the newcomer named Brad Pitt came in, Gina Davis became so flustered that she screwed up her lines and really botched his audition. She kept apologizing and apologizing. He was very nice about it. Um, after the men left, the casting people and Ridley Scott were talking about the three brunettes. And Gina Davis was standing there kind of fuming, thinking, what would Susan Sarandon do in this situation? She would speak up. So Gina said, don't you want to know what I think? The blonde one, hello. <laughs> um, so that resulted in Brad Pitt getting his first role in the movies, and he apparently made quite an impression. I think um, that is partly because this is one of the only movie sex scenes ever shot from a woman's point of view. Ridley Scott personally sprayed Evian water on Brad Pitt's abs so that they would glow perfectly in the light, and the reaction shots of Gina Davis show her ogling him with pure, unadulterated lust. I think it's how audiences learn to look at him from then on. Uh, but it was a distinctive scene because it wasn't the camera, the camera wasn't ogling the woman for a change, it was ogling the man. Now, many, many years later, Gina Davis was on a plane and uh, seated right next to her was George Clooney. And he said to her, oh, I hate that Brad Pitt. I'm, I'm just so annoyed with him. And Gina said, why? He said, because he got that part instead of me with you. You know, you remember the audition. Well, Gina did not remember the audition because George Clooney had also been a complete unknown at that time. And she had no idea that one of the people she read with went on to become George Clooney. Um, so we only learned this uh, about the time I was researching the book, actually, because of that. He has since confirmed that, yes, he was one of the people who failed to get the part. And luckily for me, I got to see the audition tapes for everyone. And I did get to see his audition tape. And I must say, I was not impressed. Clearly improved quite a bit after that time. It's funny. There's that little Kentucky uh, back, you know, there's that Kentucky connection there because Callie and Clooney are both from Kentucky and, uh, um, it's interesting that not that they didn't they didn't end up working together in any way, but in this case, but uh, it is interesting that both of them have come from very from very uh, quiet roots to their success. 
Um, people from all over the country, for example, can find ways of being successful. And it's, it's interesting. I say that because I live in Kentucky. So I'm, I've just been here for a few months. So I'm starting to learn more and more about all the different people from this area. So, Well, George Clooney, look out now that you've been in Kentucky. <laughs> anyway, so then the, the actual making of the film. I wanted to ask you, and I, I know you talk about it in the book, but I think it's you know it's something worth bringing up. On most films, obviously, uh, for you know, it's different in television than it is in in Hollywood. The writer pretty much doesn't have any real say so or control, or not even even usually on the set. How did things go with Callie and during the making of the film? Was she allowed on the set at all, or was it pretty much once the film was making was being made, she was out of it? She was allowed on the set a few times. She was very frustrated. She wished she could have been on set more often. Uh, she wasn't happy with a few of the changes that were made along the way and felt she should have had more input. Ridley Scott, on the other hand, felt like he had a small budget. He had to shoot a lot of footage in a short amount of time. He felt that he'd spent the time he needed with her to get her point of view, and he needed to be left alone to do his job. So there was... A little bit of conflict between the two of them during this time, which uh, shadowed the production a, a little bit. And then, of course, there also were, as the film was being made, it, you know, like you point out, is that people like um, Susan Sarandon, for example, was clearly, and you say for for positive reasons, she was somebody who had her she she was wrapped up in the film i mean you know it was her life too so she she made sure that there were things in other people too it wasn't just a matter it, it seemed like an interesting set when you when you when i read through some of the stories about people that were able to to get their points across and clearly it sounded like ridley scott was open to to listening to the people who uh he in the film who were obviously going to be up on the screen with their roles I think because he felt insecure about his grasp of women, he was more willing than he might ordinarily have been to listen to women's point of view, which greatly benefited the movie. It benefited from the fact that it had not one, but two outspoken, smart female stars. Uh, usually on a movie, there are very few women around and they feel that they don't get much say that they're outnumbered there was just enough of a critical mass of female input into this movie that the women felt they had power and could get their points of view across uh, for example there was one day when they were filming a driving scene and ridley scott came up to gina davis and said this is a day when thelma's feeling really great and really free what would you think if she stood up in the car as it's driving along and took off her top and waved it around. Well, Gina Davis was kind of horrified, but didn't quite know what to say. This is the kind of thing that happens in workplaces all the time. Like, what do I do? So she went back and told Susan Sarandon over lunch what Ridley had said. And Susan Sarandon said, well, that can't happen. That's, that's not right. So she marched up to Ridley Scott and quickly put a stop to that. Um, I think the fact that there were two women together gave them the strength to say, you know, that is not realistic. When women are feeling really great and really free, they do not drive along in a convertible with their tops off. Um, so he listened and it all worked out. It's the same way that um, Gina in her way helped by casting Brad Pitt. She had a clear sense of what might appeal to the ladies in the audience more than the men doing the casting did. And she said, no, no, no. This is the guy that women will think is irresistible. And she was right. 
it's another example of how uh, listening to people made the movie so much better. Then, of course, Gina, you know, because of the way the, the, the script, the screenplay is written, she has two of the toughest uh, uh, scenes in the film. And you talk quite a bit about especially, well, how both were both the rape scene and then the scene with Brad Pitt about how difficult those scenes were for her and, and how much uh, the whole thing was just it, it clearly seemed like, uh, you know, it took a lot out of her in many ways, but it was clearly done. It sounded to me like from the way you described it, that uh, Ridley Scott knew what he was doing as far as how he was doing things and understanding how the whole thing could affect her. Yes. And I think you know, Gina was in her 30s by that time and had parts under her belt and was mature enough to handle it. There was a casting director I spoke to in the course of researching the book who talked about how so many women in movies, they're very young. They might be 20 years old. They might be the only woman on the set. They're told to just get naked and do a sex scene. Imagine how hard that must be to do. I mean, it was hard for Gina Davis with her experience and her more advanced age to pull something like that off. It, it makes you appreciate how very tough it is for young women who are starting out in films. Because young men often have a lot of supporting parts, like best friend parts, and they gradually move into leading roles. Women get leading roles when they're very young, very inexperienced, and uh, easily exploited. Um, this was an example of a movie where that was not happening. Thank goodness. So then, of course, then we start to see some of the, you know, it's a few things like, for example, the, the Ridley Scott touch, especially once he's uh, once uh, they're on the road, so to speak, including the the explosions. And the, there were some of that in there. And and that clearly is where Ridley Scott's touch comes in, as I mentioned. Uh, but it still hopefully didn't take apart, take away too much from the overall strength of the film scenes like that, where uh, between, and you even mentioned that Susan Sarandon wasn't real happy about the, uh, the scene of the policeman being put in, in the trunk of a car, that kind of thing was uh, those kind of issues still ended up becoming problematic as far as how she and, and others felt uh, they were being shown in the film. Um. Yeah, I don't know about the police in the trunk of the car one so much, uh, but she she was worried about glorifying violence in general. Um, so there was a lot of discussion about that along the way. But I think she would agree that Ridley Scott's visual panache brought so much to the movie. It did not detract from it in any way. In fact, it enhanced it greatly. And it it raised the movie to that classic status that I don't think it would have had if it had had some cheapy look. Ridley Scott had a tremendous visual sense and he brought it to this relatively small story for him. And I loved researching and writing these parts of the book uh, about the many, many ways that he made the movie visually arresting and therefore more important and made the issues seem bigger because of the way he framed them. But then we come to the ending, and of course, it was in this particular case, it was one of the last scenes filmed for the for the movie. But it was still being uh, argued about, even as they were getting ready to film it. 
that there was still large amount of discussions going on as to we're going to do the ending the way it was written or are we going to make some changes? And that ending, uh, even though in the end they went with it, it still wasn't something that uh, everybody was uh, sure about going forward. Yes, I don't think a studio run by anybody but Alan Ladd Jr. would have let that ending be filmed. But he was a believer in letting the filmmakers make their own decisions. Now, Ridley Scott had his own qualms about the ending. And here again, he brought his visual skills to bear. He felt that the final scene had to have a majestic grandeur that would raise the feeling of that scene to the level of myth. He wanted it to seem not that Thelma and Louise were getting into some wretched car crash, but that they were entering into a mythological realm, a world that was bigger than what they were leaving behind. So he spent a tremendous amount of effort seeking out all the locations of the movie, but in particular, the ending location. It had to be grand. It had to be beautiful. It had to be otherworldly. And he found the canyon in Utah that had beautiful red rocks and dramatic vistas and waited exactly for the golden hour as the sun was going down to capture those final moments in the film and give them a beautiful glow and the final close-ups of Gina Davis and Susan Sarandon, the sun is behind them and it's giving them coronas around their heads. It, it is otherworldly and it does make a bigger statement than it would have made otherwise and helps sell that ending. It's funny. I remember a DVD version of the film. This would obviously have been years ago when it came out with some outtakes. And one of the outtakes actually showed the car making it to the other side. And that was one of the possible ways that they thought they could get away with, with it. And it it was interesting to see it and just say to yourself, that never would have worked. That would have been silly, especially up until that point. A very realistic film. We're suddenly going to put something like this at the end. Yeah, they were really boxed in in a way. How else could you get out of that situation? Are they supposed to do a plea bargain and go to jail? That would be deflating. Um, at the very first um, test screening for the movie, the audience hated the movie. They did not know what to make of something that was so unusual. I read the comment cards by people, and I remember one of them said, what kind of movie is this? Um after the test screening, the filmmakers sat around over dinner, tearing their hair and tearing the movie apart, thinking, how could we please people? Because they had said in particular they didn't like the ending. But there had been one shot tacked onto the ending at that screening that softened it a little bit. So Alan Ladd Jr. said, hold off. Remember why we love this movie in the first place. Let's not change it too much. Before the next test screening, which was the next day, let's just snip off this one little shot and see if making the ending stronger would somehow make a better impression on the audience. So that's the way they showed it the very next night, and the movie tested through the roof, as they say. And the audience went crazy for it. While people think maybe they don't like that movie, I think they are craving that powerful, cathartic statement that it makes and felt that the overall experience was more satisfying that way. So they saved the movie by not messing with it too much and going back to its original intentions. Yeah, because you talk about how the person that you mentioned that the person that Ridley Scott was most concerned about what they thought was Callie, since this was her story, or, you know, that she had come, had brought. 
And in the long run, she was very happy with the way the movie was made. Yeah, the first time she saw it, she was kind of shell-shocked, and she fixed on some little things that were not quite what she had in mind, and they really bugged her. But then over time, she realized how much the movie that was made was what her original vision was and, and wound up quite happy with it. But many, many years later, when I interviewed Ridley Scott, uh, he said to me, uh, I'm still not sure if she liked it. Do you know? <laughs> um, so he was always nervous whether he had pleased her. So the film back then, and of course, you know, we're talking about the early 90s, you know, that period of time when, of course, films still stayed in the theaters for a while. It was one of those films that started off slowly, I mean, as far as uh, quietly, but then built very quickly to becoming a very uh popular film that especially given the time you know it was released in you know in the in may right it was uh it was memorial day weekend which back then was the beginning of the summer blockbuster season i mean now it's gotten into earlier in may but so it came out in a an, an unusual time so to speak for what the film was supposed you know where it represents and yet um ended up becoming very popular and uh successful well, it wasn't supposed to be released at that time when the competition was so heavy. It was supposed to be released in March, but Pathé ran out of money. Uh, they couldn't even pay the lab for the prints. They couldn't even pay for posters. They had to delay the launch of the movie. And even then, they did not have a big marketing budget. So it kind of just snuck up on theaters without people knowing what it was or thinking they wanted to go see it. Uh, what was interesting, though, was that it did speak in a very profound way to a lot of people. And after the first weekend, rather than the box office take dropping off, as it does with virtually every movie, it actually continued to go up as people told their friends, you've got to see this. It's so wild. It's unlike anything you've ever seen. It was blowing their minds and became a huge cause celebre. It was on the cover of Time magazine and became one of those things that people debated about late into the night. Should it ended that way? Does it mean that women were running amok? Was it anti-men? There were all these issues that it raised that struck a chord in society. So it became bigger and bigger and bigger. And by the time it came out into video, it was huge in video um, because by that time, everybody had to have an opinion about Thelma and Louise if you were an informed human being. It, that, that phrase, anti-men, I still don't understand it, and yet you hear it all the time, even today, something being anti-men. I says, oh, okay. It doesn't make sense. I mean, it, it becomes a normal criticism of, of anything, uh, especially if, if, if a woman is powerful. Uh, for some reason, that comes through as being anti-men. I don't understand that, but maybe that's just me. But it becomes it, – it's interesting that those are the kind of things they dealt with because I know there's quite a bit of discussion about some of the uh, pushback by some critics and others that uh, – Susan and Sarandon and, and Callie and other people that were made that that made the film had to push back at because of the kind of criticisms they received. Yes, they were stunned. They never saw it that way. Compared to movies that starred men at the time, this was so mild. I actually do the numbers in right. the book about the number of people killed in an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie or a Sylvester Stallone movie at the time. It was in the in the dozens. 
And in this movie, as Gina Davis said to me, three people died and two of them were Thelma and Louise. Uh, they were shocked that it was regarded this way. But I think it says more about the limited roles of women in movies normally, that it would shock people that women were behaving in a way that men behaved all the time at, because we were accustomed to seeing these very passive female characters who were saying good luck, honey, in the background. So I don't want to run out of time before we talk about what we've mentioned early on being some of the overarching point behind the the book in the first place, which is the issues related to women in Hollywood. I, I think one of the things, and Callie's own success in television proved it, that women in television seem to be showing a better success rate. I mean, uh, she... Doesn't, she did not work, you know, she's somebody who's been very careful with what she's done over her career. She didn't, she hasn't done a lot of things, but she uh, was the creator of the TV series Nashville. And there are other women, uh, Shonda Rhimes being another example, where they are actually having success in television and in that medium. But the movies are still, to a large extent, the role of, uh, you know, in the realm of men. These latest revelations that are out now about Harvey Weinstein at the Weinstein Company in Miramax and how he harassed, sexually harassed women who worked with him. It's a pervasive culture in Hollywood that's so unfortunate. Women have to be so tough and fierce and strong to get their points of view across in that environment. And that's why this movie is a good example, because Callie Curry was very tough about not compromising, not letting people tell her that her movie wasn't right, that it should be done differently. She stood up for herself and it worked for once. There, I'm sure so. there are countless times when it hasn't worked for people and their voices weren't heard or they just left the industry because it was so hostile to women. It's such a shame because we'd have more great movies like Thelma and Louise if there were more opportunities for people who don't usually get to have their work Shown. Let me ask you a question about this. This is more of a philosophical question. I know there are some women who have had success in Hollywood and and uh, some of the Catherine Bigelow is probably the person I can think of off the top of my head the most. But sometimes I wonder if her films, as as great as they can be, are they still and how do I want to put this? being made in, you know, in a men's realm. I mean, obviously she's made two films in particular that were uh, related to war or to, uh, you know, military and those kind of things, or the CIA with, with, uh, with her second film. um, uh, So, or not her second film, but the, I'm thinking of Hurt Locker. And then of course the, my mind just suddenly went with the, the one about the Osama bin Laden, but are women, I'm sorry. Zero dark. Third. Thank you. I don't. My mind didn't work. Do you feel like we're still dealing, even when women are having some have the ability to, to to make films, that they're still being forced to compromise in what they want to do? Well, <coughs> I don't think Catherine Bigelow is compromising. I think her personal taste and her interests run toward this sort of subject matter. She's interested in battle and war and codes of honor in such crises. She's making the film she wants to make. Now, perhaps she has benefited somewhat from the fact that the kinds of movies that she feels compelled to make are more in the 
normal realm of men's action movies that are more easily greenlighted in Hollywood. <coughs> um, I think it's much, much harder for people who are trying to make a film about something that isn't the ordinary subject matter of a Hollywood movie. It's one reason movies are so boring because we feel that we're seeing the same stories over and over and over again. I think movies would benefit tremendously from having different points of view and giving us the opportunity to see something that surprises us. Well, of course, the other thing is, is that the single voice, not single voices being the only person, but obviously movies these days and for many years now have been on my biggest complaint is they've, they've go through so much, so many different voices who get to, you know, these huge numbers of producers and screenplay writers and test screenings where you lose the voice of whatever was being meant in the first place. And one of the things I think that uh, this particular Thelma and Lee showed is that sometimes the single voice is going to often is usually going to give you greater success yes something more distinctive and that's why i found it so interesting the test screenings that they decided to ignore that first audience and go with their instincts and with the original concept and that saved the day so one of the things and i'm and we're running out of time here but um i was the other thing is i wanted to mention in passing is that how happy I was to see your notes at the end of the book, because like you said, you wanted to make sure that when you wrote this book, that it was clear where you got all your information so that there could be no, you know, a story wasn't coming through as being apocryphal, but no sense of truth. And yet one of the great things of your notes is that how many people you were able to talk to about this film. And, and it's so great to see, you know, your interviews and, and how you came up with so many different great stories to, to build this whole, uh, story together. And I wanted to mention that in passing that I thought that was a, a particularly nice part of the book. Well, thank you. And I enjoyed interviewing so many different people who were involved in the movie. I think uh, some of the top people, uh, we already kind of know their stories and point of view. Uh, people who worked on the crew, people who worked on the art direction, people who worked on the music. I found getting their perspectives fascinating and also their observations about what was going on in the overall film. I was able to speak to so many people, I think, because for many, many of them, this was a career highlight, if not the career highlight. They're very proud of that film, of the statement it makes, of it, the fact that it's so beautifully crafted. Um, so they were happy to talk to me. And since the book has now come out, I've heard from so many people who were involved in the movie who got a huge kick out of it because everyone was working on their part of it, even the major players, and they didn't see all the other aspects that were going on when they weren't personally present. So they feel like now they have the complete story for the first time and are enjoying having that opportunity. Okay. Well, uh, are you working on anything else right now, or is it, uh, because obviously you you know you finished this book and it took a lot obviously a long amount of time to get it done and get it the way you wanted it. But uh, is there anything else that's in the pipeline, so to speak, that uh, you want to mention? Well, I'm mulling it over, um, but as was the case with this book, because I write nonfiction, I won't just launch into something until I'm sure that it's really a good story because I'm not allowed to make it up if it's not. <laughs> So I'm looking into things. It hasn't stopped some people, it sounds like, but well, from from reading the news. That's maybe the case, but um, I believe in being completely accurate. And yet I still want the story to be a great read for people. So I will keep 
messing around until I find something that satisfies both criteria. So, well, thank you for talking to me. Uh, like I said before, this is a great book. And of course, it's a great film, which makes, you know, the two together working so well. I hope people will take the time to not only read your book, but then go back and watch the film again. And and I think uh, it deserves to be watched over and over again. Film The film is as the uh, classic that it is. So thank you for talking with me. Thank you. I, I've seen the film a lot over the summer uh, because they've shown it a lot of places and had me come speak. And it's amazing how fresh it still feels. It, maybe it's sad in a way that some of these issues are still unresolved issues in our culture, but it also is fun to see the movie because it still strikes at the heart of many of the things that drive people crazy in real life. Yeah, point well said, and I think it's a good place to end this. So thanks a lot. Thank you, Joel. Thanks to Becky for her time. I hope you will read her great story of a great film. This is Joel Cherney, and I will be back soon with more new books in film.